Welcome to the Shigon Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Fry. I have a very special guest today, longtime Major League executive with a bunch of teens. I can't wait to get to him. First, I'm going to throw it back to our producer, Dave D'Agostino, for a few announcements, and then we'll get to our guest. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Episode 468 now on the Real Voices of the Game Network. Just want to thank a few people. 68,000 subscribers. We appreciate you on all 74 countries. I was disappointed because I thought that was good, Jeff, but apparently there's 194 countries globally, so we got some work to do. So a little bit of work to do. But if if you want to get involved with our network, Millions is our newest marketing partner. If you go to Millions and hit one of two uh, tabs, book me, advertisers. You can contact us if you're interested in advertising on this particular show or any of our shows, or if you're interested in bringing on Shigon Nation leader Jeff Fry to speak, you can also request him there. For, for his fee on that that platform. Hit the shop icon and you can look at our new merchandise, hoodies, t-shirts for men and women, brand new baseball caps that we love. You can also hire our hosts out to get to know them better for an experience. And that's just to basically ask them a baseball question. 30 to 90 seconds, I'll answer it. And it's a great way to get to know our, our hosts a little bit better. Jaw Bats, She Gone at checkout, get you a discount on Frito um, and on this podcast. Also, the Kinetic Arm, great new device, five patents on this. We think it's going to be an innovative uh, addition to Major League Baseball to help them maybe solve some of the arm injury problems. Prevents arm lag. It's a multi-joint dynamic stabilizer. Aids in deceleration. So at checkout, for right now, you can, eat, you can use RVG DAG at checkout to get a discount. We'll make sure we get Jeff's code out there to the audience as well, so you can use his too. Also want to thank one-on-one College Pathways. Mm-hmm. Uh, $540 million in scholarships over the last four years, basketball and baseball. Uh, make sure we support them. And then we've got a new product possibly next week. You're going to love this, uh, Monet hair products. They said it prevents hat head. It'll prevent us baseball guys. And those, uh, I got some of the hosts said they're, they don't have enough hair for hat head right now. I'm not saying it'll put hair back in the head, but it'll take care of the hair that's there still. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you to reintroduce our guest. Thank you, Dave. Uh, <clears throat> our guest today is a longtime Major League Baseball executive with the New York Yankees, Atlanta Braves, and Seattle Mariners. 37 years of front office scouting and development experience. Roles of Senior VP of Baseball Operations for the Yankees, Special Assistant to the GM for the Braves and the Yankees, International Scouting Director, Professional Scouting Director for the Yankees, National Cross-Checker for the Mariners and the Yankees signed, developed, or drafted Alex Rodriguez, heard of him, Jason Veritek, David Ortiz, Robinson Cano, Melky Cabrera, Ronald Acuna, Ozzy Albies, Austin Riley, El Duque, and others. That's all he's done so far. Signed 14 Major League Baseball All-Stars, five World Series rings, seven American League championships, former professional player in the Detroit Tigers system, is a college All-American at Chapman University. Our guest today is Mr. Gordon Blakely. How you doing, Gordon? I'm doing good. Boy, that, that introduction makes me sound awful old to be, <laughs> to be around that long to, to have some success like that. But thank you for having me on. Oh, you're welcome, buddy. I've been, uh, I've been looking forward to this. And I was thinking about this today when I think the first time we met was when I came over to, to Dallas to do the uh, help you guys out with one of those Future Star series events and I uh, worked with some infielders and I remember meeting you and we kind of hit it off right away and uh, I don't know that our paths have ever crossed before that but I'm sure you probably saw um, me play a little bit when I was with the Red Sox playing against the Yankees back in the day. 
Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, we did. We did kind of. I think we're old school. I think we uh, we look at things uh, probably into the past window where it's uh, not so much into the metrics, but <clears throat> it's like I I've said numerous times to scouts as I'm working with them is that you can't judge you can't judge somebody's heart or makeup on a computer. And I think uh, I think you kind of you know you <clears throat> I watched some film clips of you. And uh, watching kids today, and you were running out of the box like it was a double when it wasn't going to be a double, but you were running that way. So I, I always loved that. Yeah, yeah. I was I was trying to steal first, man. You know, a lot, a lot of those weak grounders I hit, I turned into singles because I was busting out of the box because I knew that the next day in the paper that infield single that three hopper to shortstop would look just like a line drive. So I wasn't taking any chances. <laughs> yeah, well, you did. You did a good job of that. You I, and I can see why you signed and how how you got to the big leagues. You asked me one one time. Well, you asked. You put it on the on the internet about somebody grading your tools, and um, you know, obviously, you hit almost four uh, three hundred in the big leagues. So you were above average hitter. So that would be a six or a seven. And um, I think your makeup probably was eight because that's. Everything else was four or five. Would you agree with that? Yeah, my arm was below average. My running speed was, I mean, I ran a six six in college. I don't know what that is. Probably like a five or six, I'm guessing. That was that's, a, that's a six. That was on turf. Um, my senior year, racing a guy on my team who I knew was going to get drafted, and it was for a Red Scout, and nobody thought that I could run with him. And I probably couldn't, but I, that day I could because I, <laughs> I was looking at it as my only opportunity to get to play at the next level. And so I ran a 6-6, but power was below average. Fielding, I would say, was, thanks to Perry Hill, became average. But uh, I know in today's measurements, I would have been you know, a, a below average player. But like you said, they can't measure your heart and your desire, and that's uh, – you know, I had a lot of that just because uh, I wanted to do something special, something that nobody in my family had ever done. And, you know, fortunately, I got the opportunity. That's enough about me. I want to talk about you, Gordon. You've, you've okay. done it all in this game. And, uh, you know, it, incredible resume. And some of the players we've been talking the last few days about some of the players you've been involved with and, I mean, you helped build the Yankees franchise, the Braves franchise, and I think it's just a testament to your hard work and your baseball knowledge that you've accumulated over the years to what you've done in, in uh, with your involvement in Major League Baseball. So, I mean, I'm honored to have you here today. I appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit today about uh, some of the stuff going on in youth baseball. I see that uh, you know, there are a lot of different – organizations that are doing the showcase stuff. I know you've been involved a little bit in some of that stuff, but uh, we won't mention any names of these organizations, but I know, I know that the parents out there think that their kids have to go to these showcases to get recognized and that if they don't go, they're, you know, they're going to get passed up or be left behind. And I think that's incorrect. And I know you and I have talked about it a little bit, but I mean, yeah, I, I think, yeah, Jeff, I think that showcases are really for the elite. Um, the, the guys who are very, very advanced and 
you know, maybe have a chance to play in these higher levels of baseball right now. They're stronger. Um, so they can play in those, those good four-year schools or get drafted and signed. Um, that doesn't mean that the other kids don't have a chance to do that. <clears throat> I uh, have given some advice to parents over the last six months, and I tell them to come up with a budget of what you can afford um, to do for your, for, your, for your son in terms of extra outside of the high school uh, season. And my formula is pretty easy is one, if you can afford it, is to have somebody that's an instructor that's a good instructor. So if you're a position player, you need to get somebody that is equipped to help you and direct you uh, hitting wise. And that doesn't mean that you sit with that person all the time. That may be a person you see once a week, once every two weeks or once a month. But that person gives you drills to work on. And with that, you find a facility or field where you can do those drills. Um, I spent a lot of time in Latin America. And if you're not getting 100 swings a day, you're falling behind. Because those kids are not going to school. Or they're doing school online now down there. And they're working their way into 300 swings a day. So <clears throat> with the kids in the States... I like the travel ball more than a lot of people do um, simply because it gives you a chance to play games. And for me, the only way to get better is to play games against competition, preferably good competition. And the second part is obviously work at your, at your uh, art, hitting, fielding. And do, I'm a big sprint guy. Um, the showcase stuff comes later. If I'm a parent of an eighth and ninth grader and really some 10th graders, because you're just not physically strong enough, um, I would bypass the showcase circuit for now and then maybe look at it when you're an 11th or 12th. But I will tell you this, the scouts, the major league teams with scouts, if you're a good player and same holds true for these colleges, they're going to find you. And you, you really don't have to be at these showcases for that to help. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of these showcases are the ones I've seen are like strange times during the year. I mean, these kids are, they're having showcases in December and January when these kids need to be taking a break. We've just seen so many kids get hurt because they're playing too much and they never take a break. And it's like, they have this, I think the parents have this idea that if these kids ever take a break, that they're not going to catch up. And, and we both know that's not right. And and I, I just hate to see kids get hurt at early ages because a lot of them will never be the same. And I think it's it's very damaging to the game to see these kids playing year round. Well, it'd be nice to see them play other sports, but but somebody has told kids you you don't have to play other sports. It's very important to take time off. Very important. I'm a, I'm a big believer in December and January or early January. Um, you really don't do anything except run. Maybe a little, maybe a little bit of toss, but basically run and just step away. Take a break from the game. If you can play a, a high school season of 25, 30 games and you can play 20 to 25 games in the summer, I think that's plenty. Yeah. Well, I know what I know it's changed a lot since I was playing professionally, but. When the season ended, I didn't pick up a ball or a bat 
to at least after Thanksgiving. And then I would start maybe getting some light workouts in. I was lifting probably started probably about a month after the season, start lifting and working out and getting in shape, but no baseball activity. I mean, I've actually gone to spring training without taking a single ground ball because I knew that once I got there, I was going to have six weeks of, of working at it. And I knew what Perry Hill taught me. I didn't need to go take a bunch of ground balls on crappy fields, you know, in the off season, I would just be ready to go physically and show up ready to work at, at, at my baseball skills. But I know that's different now. It seems like guys are, you know, they're going to driveline. They're doing all these things. They're, they're paying these guys to help them develop a swing or, or these pitch laboratories and stuff. And I think their injuries are just because there's overuse and even at the big league level. What do you think? Well, so many of them are overthrowing on top of that. You know, it's throw as hard as you can. And, and if you go to a big league game, basically <clears throat> outside of maybe some reliever who's trying to, to throw as hard as he can, nobody's throwing the ball 100%. Mm-hmm. It's 60 to 80% effort. Um, I can tell you this. When I was with the Yankees, Jeter lived in Tampa. And, of course, the Yankees really were run out of Tampa, player development and scouting. And Jeter would take – of course, our seasons went into November because we were – so many playoffs and World Series, but he would come in December 1st. He would take off a couple of weeks in November. He wouldn't do anything, go on vacation, Europe, whatever. He would come in and he had his own um, uh, guy that trained him and he did nothing but agility work in December and January. He didn't pick up a ball. He didn't pick up a bat. It was almost a two month. He just worked on his footwork and agility. Um, so that tells you something there. That's, you know, I mean, one of the best in the game. And right. obviously in that time period, probably the best best player with 3,600 hits. But here's a guy taking off all of, all of December, all of January, and only working on agility. Wow. And, you know, it ticks me off every time people talk about negatively about Derek Jeter. I mean, here's a guy who played for the Yankees. I was on the Red Sox, so we we're natural enemies, rivalries rivals and uh i just i couldn't help but appreciate this guy's professionalism and he was the one guy on their team that i did not want to come up in a key situation because i knew he was clutch and there is a clutch gene i believe even though uh what's his name (laughs) the analytics guru bill james says there isn't but Derek jeter was clutch and Derek jeter was the example of what a professional baseball player is supposed to act like on and off the field. And when people talk about how he's overrated and all this, it just boggles my mind because I'm like, you guys didn't see what we saw. This guy was it. You know, you, with a player like Jeter, you have to see the And really the, the Yankee clubs that I was associated with there in the nineties, they were ultimate professionals. Um, you didn't see them. <laughs> you didn't see them jumping around and bat flipping and all that in all that garbage. Um, in fact, I ne- don't remember anybody doing that. Um, <clears throat> but they're the ultimate professionals. Um, and Jeter being the kind of the, the mainstay of that. When you look at his numbers and what he achieved, I, I have a tough time um, even figuring how somebody could talk negatively about him. You know, and here's a classic too, because you talk about swings all the time. He didn't have a great swing. Nope. That wasn't a classic swing, and I certainly wouldn't teach 
anybody to set up like that. And he kind of had a little inside out, but he would trick you because you think, I remember watching, you think you could get him in, you could get him in because he was trying to maybe flare a ball into right field. And then you, then at third or fourth pitch, he turned on you and he hit it in the seats and left. Yeah. Um, but he was, he was a great clutch player. Great clutch player. I, I believe strongly in clutch. He always figured a way how to get a hit. It didn't, it did. Everybody says, oh, he was, he was lucky. No, the, the ball fell in. It's a hit. I don't, I don't, I don't think you ever pick up the paper or the box score the next day. There's a thing of the past, the box, reading box scores, right? Right. Um, and see, uh, it was a blooper or it was a line drive. Yeah. Jeter just had a way of beating you. And that's, you know, I mean, uh, five, we had five World Series with him. We had seven American League pennants. I think we only, I don't think we missed the playoffs his whole, the whole time he was a Yankee. I don't, I don't think we missed the playoffs. So, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, playing on the other side against those teams, the Yankees. I mean, he wasn't the only one that was a professional. There were a bunch of them. I mean, there was Bernie Williams was a professional, and Tino Martinez, and Jorge Posada, Rivera. And I just think of the Yankees, um, the Yankees way that they did things with Joe Torre and, and everybody involved with the Yankees and Zim and those guys, that, that uh, they demanded professionalism out of their guys. And that, Yeah, I, they did. You know, Joe, people, uh, I George used to get on – on Joe, he'd complain about Joe. I think he complained about Joe because Joe got a lot of got a lot of headlines and maybe stole the headlines from George. But Joe was a absolute great manager. All those all those egos, all those star players, he insulated them from the press. He insulated them from the owner. I'm telling you, Joe was Joe was just absolutely outstanding. Everybody loved working around Joe. Yeah, and when you have somebody like that, it's such an advantage over the other teams. You could just see that, you know, from the other side of the field, that the respect that his players had for him and that those players are going to go out and give you everything every single time because they know you have your their back and they, you know, they trust in what you've taught them over the years. And just, man, I was so jealous. We were so close, but we could never quite catch up to those Yankees teams. and. You know, back in those days, George did have quite a, a little bit higher payroll than the rest of the league. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, hey, he was a winner. And I don't really – I mean, the Yankees right now are not the Yankees of the past. And they still have a lot of big names and great players. But it's almost like when they moved into that new stadium, the Yankee mystique went away. A little bit. I was in the – we got beat in the – uh, World Series with Arizona. I can't remember if that was 2001 or 2002, but I was in the stadium and we came back. And, and I don't know if you remember it, but we won, we won like three games in a row with ninth or tenth inning home runs. And the, the, the stadium sh- absolutely shook. I thought the place was going to come down. And I had goosebumps on my arms. And I to this day... I feel there were ghosts floating around that stadium making the Diamondbacks come apart in those late innings. It was like, we're just not, you just can't win in this stadium if you're a visiting team. Yeah, it was tough. I, mean, I had some great battles in that stadium. The, the Roger Clemens, Pedro Martinez game was cool. My cool. One of my coolest memories ever of old Yankee Stadium was, uh, I believe it was the, the last year they had the All-Star game there. And I was fortunate enough to get to go 
to Home Run Derby when Josh Hamilton put on his show. I think 27 home runs in one round. And I was sitting next to Michael Weiner, um, who was head of the union at the time. And, and Josh Hamilton had Yankee Stadium chanting his name. And I had goosebumps on my arms thinking, yeah. like, man, I played a lot of games in the stadium. They don't like the visiting guys very much. And, and to see them do that to Josh Hamilton, that was a pretty incredible experience. Well, the great thing about Yankee fans is they're very not, and nothing against Boston. I'm sure they are too, but they, um, and, and when I was recruiting players on top of that, but they, uh, they respect good baseball, whether it's their team or another team. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I used to use this on recruiting a lot with the Latin players. In fact, I basically got Milky Cabrera away from the Red Sox. Cause I said, why do you want to go to Boston? Yankees are where you want to be. That's an international town. If you're if you're Dominican and you're a good player, they're going to love you. I'm not sure that's going to happen in Boston. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, we got him signed, and he was obviously a good player. But um, yeah, Yankee, New York's New York baseball is is very special. No doubt about it. So let's talk a little bit about uh, scouting these days. It seems the scouting has changed a lot, and I unfortunately have seen a lot of long-time scouts let go by organizations, almost like mass firings of these older guys who've dedicated their whole lives to the game. And I mean, it's really unfortunate. And, you know, now I see a lot of the young, I don't go out to many games, as many games I used to when I was representing players, but started seeing a bunch of 20 year old, 25 year olds run around with backpacks and just taking videos of players. And I guess sending them into the office for them to evaluate, but how have you seen the scouting world change in the last five to 10 years? I've seen it change dramatically. Um, and you're right. That's kind of what's going on. Somebody in the office is, is looking at a uh, video and make, and looking at the metric numbers that they've come up with to make a determination on, um, on what players are going to, you know, draft and or sign. And they've, you know, this commissioner's office has gotten rid of a lot of minor league teams that took away jobs. It takes away a lot more of the high school signs and it moves moves the scouting into a direction of, you know, a majority of college. I mean, I look at the draft now and it's it seems like it's 70 or 80 percent college guys. And and that's where you can get the metrics and you can get the all the videos you need and and that kind of stuff out of, you know, the college programs. You can't get them out of uh you know, Buford, Georgia high school game. And so consequently, a lot of those guys um, are not going to uh, not going to pro ball. And we're losing a lot of the minorities to football and basketball because of that also. Um, You know, the numbers of the minority, at least the black athlete in Major League Baseball is way down. And some of my players, I grew up a Dodger and I could name you that starting infield with you know, Maury Wills and Junior Gilliam and Willie Davis and Tommy Davis and Johnny Roseboro's a catcher were all really good, really good black players. And uh, we don't we're not we're not doing a good job of of getting the black athletes into into baseball. Um, I can tell you the old school part and I could tell you a couple of signing stories. Um, first one was David Ortiz. I can't I, I was a national guy with the Mariners and. Bill Plummer got the big league job in uh, Seattle and he took Marty Martinez with him. Marty had signed Edgar Martinez and 
Omar Vizquel, and he took him to the big leagues as a third base coach. So they didn't have any money, so they talked to me about doing both jobs. So I went down there, and my boss, Roger Youngward, who had been a great Met scout, signed uh, Strawberry and those kind of people, um, said, hey, we don't, we, our system isn't very good. He had just taken over as scouting director. Our system isn't very good. I want you to be aggressive. I want you to spend money. I want you to get after it. So we went down there. We ran a big, big workout. And at the end of the workout, they were all kind of about the same. And so I said to the, our head scout down there, I said, how much we just sign them all? And he said, all 18 guys? I said, yeah. So he got his little thing out and made notes. And he said, a hundred grand. And I said, how about the big guy? What's he going to, what's he going to cost us? And he said, oh, I don't know, seven, eight grand. I said, okay, sign him too. He's, he's really not that great, but let's sign him too. That was David Ortiz. So that's how David Ortiz got signed. <laughs> Gordon was Mitchell in that camp, Kevin Mitchell. No, this was in the Dominican. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, and and that's a that's another great story of of I think I mentioned that to you yesterday. Is um, Mitchell was a high school was going to I, I don't know what school he was uh, going to go play football at, but <clears throat> back in the day there was hardly any scouts in San Diego, and most of the scouts in L.A. would go down and handle the San Diego area. Uh, so anyway, um, Roger had decided to go down and run a workout after the draft. And he went down there and he called some people that, to get players. And this one guy called him and said, hey, uh, I'm going to your camp, but can I bring my friend? And he said, sure, bring your friend. So it was Kevin Mitchell. And uh, Roger says, God, he was really good. I called the office, said, hey, can I, can I have some money to sign him? He said, we don't have any money. So he went to Kevin and he said, hey, Kevin, I, you know, I can't sign you. I don't have any money. He says, Oh, that's all right. I don't need any money. Just sign me. So there was Mitchell signed for zero when he was became National League uh, MVP, I think, with the Giants. Yeah, he did. And we were actually teammates for the Red Sox for a little while. They we, tell me, they tell me, Kevin, Roger told me everybody was afraid of Mitch. They said nobody, nobody in the game wanted to mess with him. I, no, I guess. I, and I witnessed it firsthand. I witnessed it firsthand. We had uh, Mike Stanton was on our team and, uh, he wasn't real, you know, I, I got along fine with it, basically everybody, but he uh, rubbed a few guys the wrong way, and especially Kevin Mitchell. And so Mitchell would get on the bus and look at Stanton, at the, you know, this first or second seat on the bus and says, you special, huh? And then <laughs> finally one day we're stretching, and uh, he just had it, I guess, with the guy, and he went right up to him, like nose to nose, and says, Stanton, you think you're hot shit. He goes, let me tell you something. He goes, if you ever hear on the radio or read in the newspaper or hear on the television that I got traded, he goes, don't go to the field the next day because I'm going to knock you out. <laughs> and the look on Stanton's face was he like turned white as a ghost. And we were like, yeah, it, it, hey, and Stanton was no little man. I mean, no, no, but Mitch was, I mean, at that time he was probably, I mean, he was yeah. always a big guy, but he was extra thick and a little bit heavier than normal. And he, we were just like, oh, my God. And Stanton completely changed, man. His personality changed. We kind of felt bad for him, but we didn't. nobody wanted to mess with Mitch, man. He was a bad dude. I think he was from the Bay Area, too. He, I, th I thought he was a San Diego guy. Um, I, Roger had told me that he had he, he really was a pretty nice guy. He just ran with a bad crowd. And uh, But he said, no, nobody was messing with Mitch, that's for sure. No, that, that is, that is a fact. That is a fact. 
Well, I know you have some other stories about, uh, you know, I think we talked to George Steinbrenner, Tino Martinez. You've got so many stories. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, uh, when I first went over, went over to the Yankees, I was there a year, and my job was to do the Four Corners part of Southern California and the Pacific Rim. And Bill Livesey, who was my boss, was really big on getting the best players out of Japan and getting the best players out of Cuba. So he had Rudy Santin um, that handled Latin America, and he had me doing doing uh, uh, Japan. And um, and that 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 ended up being a uh, a really good good situation. But anyway, um, Bill got fired, and uh, George fired. I mean, it was a it was a cleansing. He fired like seventy or eighty people, scouts, player development people. So I got a phone call from the new scouting director. I was in Japan, and I got wind from an, another scout that this had gone on. So Lynn had said to me, "Hey, we need you to fly in." I said, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't need to fly into." I lived in Arizona at the time. I said, "I don't need to fly into Florida if you guys are going to fire me." He said, "No, no, 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 no. We're not. We want to talk to you about a position." So I flew to Arizona. I took a day and then I flew out to the West Coast and I had a couple of drinks on the flight and got in about, well, it was about two, three o'clock or to the East Coast. And Lynn picks me up and says, come on, we're going into a meeting. I thought, oh, brother, I wasn't, I wasn't dressed for this or anything. So we went into the conference room at Tampa and later on, I ended up nicknaming that room the bunker because that was George War, War Room where we put teams together in the off season and and it, it was a fairly good-sized room. It had a uh, table that probably sat 10 people, kind of a octagon-type table. <clears throat> so I went in, and as I went in by the door, George was sitting there by the, by the phone with the newspaper up. And although I had worked for them for a year, I, I had never met him. I didn't say anything. I went in. I sat as far away, but directly where he could see me. And it was Bob Watson, who was the GM, Brian Cashman, Stick Michael, who was a former GN, and Billy Connors, who was a close personal friend of George's, who was in charge of our pitching, and then Mark Newman, who was in charge of player development scouting. And they were talking about a trade. And George put his newspaper down. He turned to Bob and says, okay, talk to me about this Tino Martinez trade. And Bob paused for a minute. Then he turned. He goes, Gordon, you just came over from Seattle. You want to? pipe in on what what you think on uh, on this trade and George immediately put his eyes on me and pointed at me and he said you work for me I said yes I do I worked for you for a year he goes what do you think of Tino Martinez and I uh I broke Tino down scouting wise makeup wise and I said here's the summary he's going to play great defense he may win a gold glove he's going to hit 270 280 he's going to hit 40 home runs He's going to drive 120 runs in in this lineup. And George and George didn't know me from Adam. Turned to Bob and said, "We got to get this guy, don't we?" <laughs> and and um, then George says, "Okay, how about the other pieces in the puzzle?" And they were talking about trade for trading um, Russell Davis, the third baseman, who was a highly regarded highly regarded prospect, and Sterling Hitchcock, who was uh, in their rotation kind of a back back end starter. So Bob says, well, they, they uh, we're talking about Jeff Nelson. And then Stick jumped in right away and said, yeah, I think he could be our closer. Um, I think he could do that. You know, we, we're losing Wetland. 
And then George says, stick, be quiet. What, what do you, what do you, so he called me son. Son, what do you think? And I said, I love Jeff Nelson, but he's not a, he's not a closer. Not for me. Not if you're going to win it. I think he's your eighth inning guy. Come in and get those tough right-hand hitters out. And you can probably get him to get a lefty out. Um, and then you've got Mariano, who I think you should elevate to be your closer. He says, okay. He says, okay, now the third part. Bob, what's the third part? And I could tell he was he was starting to get excited. And um, and I and I he told me later on that he was impressed. Not so much I knew the players, but that I stood up and gave my opinion and didn't agree with Stick Michael. He told me that later on. Um, the third piece was uh, two guys who were in the minor leagues who I had helped sign: Jim Messier and Tim Davis. Messier was a third round pick. Tim Davis. Tim Davis was a seventh round pick. I think the same year. Um, and I said, I would do Masir. I think he could, he, he'll end up being able to pitch a, a sixth inning guy, maybe a little bit in the seventh. Um, and I said, Tim Davis is hurt. So I would stay clear of him. Bob, uh, George turned to Bob and he said, go make that deal. And they, he went out, came back in. He said, the deal's done. From then on, I sat in that chair for the next, I don't know, 15 years. <laughs> that was in every, every meeting that we ever, ever had of putting a team together making a trade. And I sat right in that, that spot. So that, that was my first experience really was some kind of front office issue. And it was my first experience with, uh, with the boss. That's cool. Yeah. And all those names, man, ring a bell. I've faced all those guys. <laughs> I remember, I mean, I faced every one of those guys, Jim is here. If I remember, he was a little two samer and maybe like a, almost like a palm ball. He had a really sweaty throw. All right, he threw a palm ball. I faced Nelly in Seattle and with the Yankees many, and he's a good friend of mine. Uh, he had that, and I tell people about Nelly. I was like, this dude's six seven. He's throwing across his body from the third base side of the rubber, and he's kind of a three quarter, and he's got like about ninety two to ninety four mile an hour running fastball. I said, but that's nothing compared to the slider. Exactly. <laughs> the slider. Well, well, now they call it a sweeper. A sweeper that he yeah. throws at you. And that, I mean, he just was, I hated facing Nelly. Facing him a bunch. I had a little bit of success against him. I like to give rib him a little bit on it. But, you know, obviously Mariano, um, you know. The, the well, that, ended, that ended up being a great trade for the Yankees. I mean. Russell Davis never really did anything, and Sterling Hitchcock was, at best, a fifth starter. Um, and Tino, Tino was a great player for us, and 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 absolute. You know, Jeter was the the captain, the leader on being a player. Tino was the enforcer in the clubhouse. People didn't mess with Tino. Tino got he's the one that got in your face when something wasn't right. I don't know if you knew that or not. No, but he was a Tampa boy, right? He was a Tampa, University of Tampa. First pick of the Mariners, uh, 80, 88, 89, somewhere in there. Huh, because he played, he was teammates with a, a guy that I played with in the Rangers minor leagues named Joey Wardlow. He was a little second baseman, and they both were at Tampa together. And I know, I remember Joey telling stories about Tino Martinez. And I played with him when he was with the Mariners and the Yankees, but he was a, Another one of those, you know, professionals that we talked about, like Derek Jeter, like Bernie Williams, and 
you know, all those other guys. Scott. Well, I mean, if you if you grade Tino out, and that that's why it's it it's important to understand the grades and what's important per position is Tino was a two runner. Tino Tino really couldn't get out of his own way. Right. He had a three arm, but he was accurate. He was a six thrower. He had great hands at first base. He dug out a lot of balls. Mm-hmm. He was a really good hitter. He didn't lift the ball. He was more of a line drive that carried out. He, when he got a pitch that he could lift, he would. But I saw a lot of Tino's home runs, and they were kind of like Hank Aaron, line drives that carried into the seats. Mm-hmm. So it was difficult to fool him. Um, you know, he was, he was a battler, and he battled against left-handed pitching. Well, he stayed square. I could still, you know, I remember seeing that guy probably played, I don't even know how many games against him, but he didn't give up on lefties. He didn't, he always kept his front shoulder, right shoulder in there, which a lot of lefties will bail out on, you know, facing lefties. And, you know, right. a, lot like, a lot like Paul O'Neill, who was another one of those guys, just a gamer. I mean, you guys had a bunch of guys like that. That uh, I, I always thought it with those teams, the length, we talked about it too when we, put clubs together is we talked about the length of the lineup, how important the seventh, eighth, and nine hole hitters were. In fact, I was making mention the other day of that, that uh, wasn't 96. It was a 98 team that won 126 games and only lost one playoff game. Um, Brocious, who we traded for, hit 325 with 20 home runs. In the nine hole. and was the nine-hole hitter. Yeah. I think Jorge was eight. And Jorge was eight, and and Jorge hit thirty home runs with, you know, hitting two seventy with a real good on-base percentage. Yeah, that, was that was that Knobloch? So that was like Knobloch, Jeter, Bernie, Tino. Um, well, O'Neill was in there somewhere. O'Neill was either third or fifth. Was Matsui there yet? Matsui was not there, and I was about to tell the Matsui story, but. Uh, I think Chili Davis was the DH. Yeah, I remember Chili. I think Chili was, Chili was the DH. And and the thing that that lineup had too was a bunch of switch hitters. Yeah. So it was they were it was a tough lineup. It was tough to get through that lineup. Every AB was a tough AB. It wasn't yeah. going guys, and that was I miss seeing that in the game where you know you knew when you had you you're going the ninth inning in a tie game or you're up by one run and you got. The top of the lineup with Knobloch, Jeter, and Bernie Williams, and Tino or Paul O'Neill, you knew the game wasn't over, man. It was going to be no. a battle. Guys weren't just up there trying to hit homers. Knobloch got on base. You know, Jeter was going to try and hit one in the four hole. Now he got first and third, no outs with a switch hitter, Bernie up. And right. you knew you were right. in trouble. Tough guy, tough guy to double up. And he's hitting, you know, Bernie's lifetime. I don't know what it was, but he had a couple years in there where he hit 335, you know. Oh, yeah. And 100 ribbies. And, yeah. You know, people talked about his bad defense in center field, but all I saw was a dude running down balls. He didn't have a great arm, but you know, no, he he couldn't throw at all. But he he put, he was he was a good center fielder, not a great center fielder, but it's good. But you know, part of that package, and we used to talk about it, is that we had offensive, big offensive production in defensive positions. Yep. You had Jeter at short that hit three hundred and maybe twenty home runs. You had Bernie in center field, defensive position, but he hit 335 with 30 home runs. You had Posada, who hit 30 home runs, was a catcher. So we had huge offense in what a lot of other teams just had mediocre offense in those positions. Yeah, plus Knobloch had some solid years there too. 
Big years. Oh, yeah. He was a really good player. Oh, yeah. He stole, he stole like 50 bases. It wasn't like, you know. Oh, yeah. He, and, was, he was one of the top second in the game at that time. When the top. We, boat ra- we both boat raced a lot of people so that stolen bases were called off uh, early in a lot of those games. So that 50 could have been 80 somewhere else. You want me to talk about the Matsui signing? Oh, I'd love to love for you to do that. Let's say I saw Matsui as a young player and knew even when I was with Seattle. And and he was a guy that I kind of targeted if he ever came out, ever got the free agency in Japan, which at the time was eight or nine years, that he would be a guy we'd go after. Well, I happened to leave and go to go to the Yankees and um, you know, and and we had a relationship with people over there and he kind of made it known that he wanted to, he wanted to leave, and he really liked he really liked New York. You know, Tokyo is a lot like New York. Um, he played for the Tokyo Giants. They're now called the Yamayuri Giants, which is the the newspaper in Japan. Um, so <clears throat> we talked about acquiring him, and we needed an outfielder. And we we're meeting in Tampa, and I went over Matsui. My report on Matsui. I saw Matsui. I bet I saw Matsui play 40 games and probably another 40 on TV because I would go back to the hotel in Japan and they would they would televise it uh, to the people at about 11 o'clock at night. So then I'd watch it again while I was sitting there having some food and a few beers. So I felt like I, I really knew him. I knew he really wasn't going to be a center fielder. We didn't need one, but he'd be a really good left, left fielder. He was a good base runner. Um, I had a little concern if he would make some adjustments, especially with the ball away from him, but he could really turn on the ball. I thought he'd be perfect in our lineup, you know, in that five or six spot. Um, and then I thought that we would make our money back just on just the, the aura of having a Japanese player and Japanese population, which I found out later on that that his salary was meaningless because we they made so much money on on him, there was flights that were chartered to come in from Japan to to watch uh, to watch him play. But anyway, we were in a meeting, and so it was Stick, myself, Lynn Garrett, uh, George, Billy Connors, uh, Mark Newman, and we were in a meeting in t- in the bunker, and we were talking. I was going over Matsui, and they brought up Cliff Floyd. So it came down to whether we were going to go get Cliff Floyd. Or Matsui, Cliff Floyd was, do you remember him, the big outfielder? Oh, yeah. Yep. yeah. Well, I had said, you know, I think I had said, Stick might have said it too, but the only problem with Floyd, he's been hurt so much. He's a really good player when he's healthy, but he's been hurt. So we took a vote. The vote, the vote was five. George didn't vote. He never, he always stayed out of the, the, the controversy. We took a vote, and I think it was four to one or five to one, depending on how many room. I was the only one that voted for Matsui. So Stick says, well, this really isn't fair because we haven't seen Matsui. Gordon's the only one that's seen Matsui. We've all seen Floyd, but Gordon's the only one that's seen Matsui. So George says, well, you guys figure it out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go get some lunch. So we put in tape of Matsui, and we had a lot of, we had a lot of tape. And, and it was good we had it because Stick's watching it, and finally he goes, you know what? Let's roll the dice. Let's go get this guy. Forget Cliff Floyd. So when it, George came back in, <laughs> uh, they did the vote again. Everybody voted for Matsui. So that tells you how important <laughs> Stick Michael was. Wow. You know, to get Matsui. They valued, they valued your opinion, Gordon. We can't. 
You know, I mean, well, I think I think Stick did, and it kind of it kind of uh, it kind of carried over. So we broke, um, and then we decided that we were going to go get Matsui, and word kind of spread, or, or maybe we had cut a deal, and we were at lunch at Malio's, uh, which was one of George's buddies' restaurants, and Lou Pinello was there. And Lou would hang out there because he always wanted to talk to George about something. So George asked him about Matsui, what he thought about Matsui. And apparently Lou told him, oh, you don't want to get that guy. I know how to pitch him. So George came back to the office and he pulls me aside and he said, Pinello says Matsui's not any good. I said, I don't agree with that, George. And he says, well, he says he knows how to get him. I said, how did he see, how is he going to pitch him? And he said, he's going to crowd him. I go, well, I can tell you right now, that's not going to work because that's the pitch he'll hit. He's got a kind of a natural bail, George. George didn't understand the game that well. Mm-hmm. So he's got a natural bail. His swing runs right into that pitch on the inside. I said, that's garbage. Well, he said, you better be right. Well, we sign him. We sign him and he gets in the spring training was just, you know, we got a hundred New York reporters and we have 4,000 Japanese reporters. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Matsui, complete class act. He takes out all the all the American reporters for dinner on him, and I, and there was a bundle of them. He laid out. He was nice. He laid out the ground rules. This is when I'll talk. This is when you need to leave me alone. Blah blah blah. Apparently, he had done that in Japan, and it worked really good for him. So anyway, the season starts. He's off to a slow start. We're about two weeks in. I get a call from George at the, at his office on the other side of the complex. He says, get over here. So I get over there and he airs me out. This guy's an embarrassment. I can't believe I listened to you. I should fire you right now. He says, what do you got to say for yourself? And I said, well, we got to be patient. He says, we're going to call Rick down. Rick down was the hitting hitting coach in the big league. So we got Rick on the phone and um, George goes, hey, Rick, I'm going to have Gordon come up there and work with Matsui. I was like, oh, wonderful. That's just that's just what we need. Some scout that signs some guy that's struggling, going to go out and work with him. And uh, Rick goes, oh, no, no, no. We're going to get him right. He says, and it, Rick was dead right. He said, he's struggling on a ball away, the two-seamer. He's not going with it, and he's rolling over it. He says, he'll get it. He's a hard worker. He's going to get it. Uh, it was about two or three. And, and so I left the office, and George didn't talk to me for about three or four days. Matsui started to started to hit. And of course he had then he had a really good year. I think he hit 25 home runs, drove in a hundred or something. And you know, the fans absolutely adored him. He was Jeter's favorite player. I mean, it was you couldn't writ, written a better Walt Disney script, you know. So I get a phone, I get a phone call at the end of the summer. It's one of the gals in New York that uh, handles special projects and that. She says, Hey Gordon, the boss wants to buy you a gift. He said, he he wants to buy me a gift. Why? And she says, well, apparently he really chewed you out on Matsu and he wants to apologize. I said, well, why doesn't he just call me and apologize? And she goes, well, you know him. That's not him. He wants to get you a gift. So he said, hey, this is get Gordon a ring. And she said, well, Gordon's got, I don't know how many rings I had, three, four at the time. And she says, why don't you get him a really nice watch? And we can engrave something nice on it. So he says, yeah, 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 do that. So she faxes me down. That's back in the fax days, by the way. <laughs> she faxes me down a um, a list of watches, probably five or six of them. 
the prices are all marked out. They're blacked out. So I said, uh, what's the most expensive? And she says, the last one on the page is a Cartier. It had diamonds in it. I said, I want that one. So sure enough, that ring showed up a week later and it was engraved on the back. And at that time, I had signed Contreras. You remember uh, oh, yeah. Jose Contreras? Yep. And on the back, it said, uh, thanks for signing Hideki Matsui, Jose Contreras, GMS. And uh, that was his way. My wife goes, "Hey, you ought to screw up, screw up a little more, and get him to yell at you. Maybe I can get, I can get a really nice gift." Wow, um, that, so that that was that was that was him. That's and that was that was the Matsui story. Well, I mean, just we've all heard stories about George Steinbrenner. You know, I'm real good friends with uh, Billy Martin Jr. I don't know if you know Billy Martin, and obviously very well. Signed some of his players. Love Billy. Billy is is one of my favorite people I've ever met. And when I first became an agent, Billy first advised me not to do it, and then when I decided to do it, he mentored me and taught me a lot about it. And yeah, I think very highly of Billy Martin, and he's told me some stories about his dad and George Steinbrenner, and you know, a lot of negative stuff about George Steinbrenner. Um. But I think the people that worked for him that knew his passion for the game, like you, appreciated this guy would do anything in his power or his wallet to help the New York Yankees be successful. Yeah, he would. He said it all the time. He said the fans are the most important. I got to take care of these fans. And I think some of it was his own ego. He wanted to win. He wanted to stand up there and say, I got I got a ring or I got another ring or I got this ring. Uh, but let me tell you what, he's a very generous man. Um, so much of uh, medical buildings, hospitals down in the Tampa area, they don't bear his name, but they bear they bear the money that he's given them. I remember during a stretch in an off season, he came in every day and he'd pick the paper up. He'd start reading the paper in the, in the bunker. He'd start reading the paper before we started meeting. And he'd call the secretary is and he says, hey, call this school. Find out what the deal is with what why they can't afford band uniform. He was a big band guy, too. Um, he built a, a band complex at Ohio State. He uh, he says, find out what they need. And I don't know how many times he wrote a check right there in front of us for ten, twenty, fifteen thousand dollars to help people out. That he was doing that all the time. He he wanted to come across as this real tough guy, but he had a very soft heart for people who were underprivileged. Look what he did for Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. Yeah, but nobody would have touch them again after what happened. Yeah. Uh, as it was though, they ended up being pretty good, pretty good resurrection projects, but nobody would have given Daryl another a shot, but he did. I mean, he, George was truly, truly a very generous man. Very generous. I love the guy, to be honest with you. He was, he was great to me. My wife had emergency back surgery and I was in the office and I didn't say anything to him. And he had gone over to the hospital for something else. His wife's name's on the one of the wings of the hospital, right there, right by the office, right by the spring training site. And he'd come back in, and I could tell he was mad. He says, well, why didn't you tell me? And I said, tell you what? He goes, I was just in that hospital, and your wife's in that hospital. And you didn't tell me that was going on? He says, what time are you leaving the office? I said, I'm leaving. I'm trying to leave about five unless you need me. He says, okay. You're going to go to the hospital? And I said, yeah. He goes, you're not going to find her. I said, what happened? He goes, I moved her. She's in a private suite. You don't ever do that to me again. Oh, no. That's cool. 
Yeah, that is amazing. And so my good friend, uh, Colonel Craig Flowers, Dave knows, and uh, hopefully you'll meet someday. Um, so he was at West Point. He was assistant coach at West Point, and he tells a story quite often about how George Steinbrenner would pay for the Army baseball team to go to spring training in Tampa. And it would be a, oh, week. Yeah. It would oh, be yeah. a week, and it would be they would go down there and play some uh, college teams, and they would go watch the Yankees practice, and it was all on George Steinbrenner. He would pay for the entire trip for the Army baseball team to go down to Tampa for a week during spring break. And Colonel Flowers tells a story about how when he had some time off, he went over to watch on the Meyer League fields, and uh, they actually had – they were practicing home run trots. And you know, we all seen what's going on today with the home run stuff. <laughs> None of yeah. us seemed to like it. But he said they would have the guys – do their home run trot. And then they, as a coach was following the guys around the field, yelling at him, saying, you are a member of the New York Yankees organization. You act like you've done this before. Get your butt around the bases. Shake your first base coach's hand, your third base coach's hand. Don't show up the pitcher. And get to home plate and get in the dugout. Act like you've done this before. And he said there was an actual – drill that they set up where by the third time every single player minor league player out there knew the yankee way that you got around the bases and you, and you represented the yankees and the uniform you know with respect and he talks a lot about those experiences he had going down there and it was all paid for by george steinbrenner oh yeah yeah he was he was really good to the players he even even the players that never got to the big leagues, he he took a vested interest in the Gulf Coast League teams, obviously because he lived there. Uh-huh. They stayed in his hotel. He owned the Radisson. He had bought that out of a bankruptcy court. It was on the water. He rejuvenated it. All the kids stayed there. He paid them more money than he, they were allowed to get. I think their minimum was 800 and he paid them a grand. All the meals were furnished, so they sent all their paychecks home. Kids, The kids never wanted to leave the complex. It was one of the problems because he was so good to them. There was one year we were playing the Dodgers for the championship of the league and they were at Vero Beach. We had to go there to play them. So he wanted he wanted to charter a plane. <laughs> he said, it's only a three hour drive, George. That's just he goes, well, okay then uh you tell all the kids that if they win, I'm gonna hand them a thousand dollars after the victory. I said, well you can't do that either. It's illegal. He goes, I'm the owner and I'll do what I want to do. You know, they won when they got back and they got back late, you know, like seven o'clock from, I think they might've played a noon game. And they got back around seven o'clock. He had steak dinners and every kid got a check for a grand. And they were, they were the Gulf Coast League guys. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he was, Man, he was why didn't I get drafted by the Yankees? <laughs> oh, no, I, you know what? We had a lot, a lot, we had a lot of problems with the Latin guys when we traded them. They were, they were, other teams would call us and said, Hey, these guys are miserable. I said, well, yeah, they got cart, cart uniforms. I mean, he signed a deal with Adidas back in the day. They're with Nike now, I think, but he got like a million dollars in equipment um, just for the minor league. So when you went in your locker, you had, you know, four or five sets of end sleeves. You had four or five practice pants. You had any kind of T-shirt, anything that ripped, he replaced immediately. Nobody on the field with anything ripped, dirty, 
you know, you had multiple hats. I mean, it was, we hit new baseballs. There was never an old baseball at a Yankee complex. They were all brand new. We hit, we hit pearls, right? We hit pearls. I mean, it, so they were spoiled. They had all the best gear. Now, he expected stuff from them. He expected them to play hard. He expected them to win. Um, but <clears throat> I was trying to think. He fired me. He fired me twice. You want me to tell those stories? Yeah, please. That's pretty good. So I, I'm sitting at my desk. At that time, I was running player development and scouting. And um, it, it wasn't a good matchup with me and him because he wanted to win in the minor leagues. And I wanted to move younger players forward. I had sent 18 Latin kids to our Midwest affiliate. I think it was Milky Cabrera and Cano were there. And they were playing sub 500. He was upset about it. So he came in one day and he was complaining about it. And then he turned and he said, Hey, this guy, I had signed a Latin guy. The mistake I made is I continued to do Latin America while I was still doing this. And I just didn't have the time for it to do it properly. And I had signed a guy on a quick look, gave him a lot of money, brought him to the States and he was struggling in the Gulf coast league. So he, he said, man, this is, this is, this is just bad. You gave this guy 500,000 and he's hitting 170. I said, well, Freddie McGriff hit 170. He says, maybe, maybe he'll come out of it. I don't know. And he goes, no, this is stupid. This is really stupid, Gordon. This is a stupid move. And he says, what do you have to say for yourself? I said, I'm stupid. <laughs> and he got up, he came around. I had a desk that, that butted into the wall. So I was only one way in and one way out. He came around. I don't know. I got up first. Um, I got up first. Sorry. He's when I said, I'm stupid. He said, you're fired. And so I got I had my briefcase right there by my side. I got up, picked up my briefcase, started to come around. Well, he got up and he came towards me and I thought, Oh my gosh, this is going to be on ESPN. <laughs> you know, you're uh, an exact, uh, the guy in charge of player on scouting is going to get in a fight with the, you know, the probably the most famous owner in sports or close to it. And, and he stopped and he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going home. He says, why? I said, you just fired me. He goes, oh, I didn't mean it. Come on. You know, I'm having a hard time with my wife. Let's go have lunch. You're not fired. That was, that was the first firing. The second firing was the legit fire. He, he finally was tired of the minor leagues not playing as well as what he wanted him to play. So he sent his son-in-law over and, um, and, uh, Steve Swindle was his, was, uh, Swindell was his son married to his, his daughter who was in charge of a lot of uh, merchandising and stuff up in New York. And he says, you know, George wants to replace you. He wants you to step down and he just wants to get somebody in here that we're going to win more in the minor leagues. I said, I'm all right with that. I said, you know, I got three three years left on this contract, and it's a pretty good contract. He says, yeah. He says, uh, yeah. He says, would you take uh, 80 cents on a dollar? And I said, yeah, I'll take it. And that was probably worth about 900000 This was, I don't know, this was 2002 or three, 20, 20 years ago. And so my thinking is, yeah, I'll go work for somebody else and take that, take that bonus. Well, he approved it. Then he had second thoughts. He called me at home and he never called me at home ever. He called me at home and he says, Hey, I, I made a mistake. There's, there's no way I'm letting you go. 
you have you have to stay with us. You know, he goes, you know too many of our secrets. <laughs> he said, you mean like the one where you take this big bag of money and you pound people over the head until they accept it? You mean that secret? He laughed. He says, no, 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 I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay here. You've got a job here for life. He says, um, what do you want to do? What, what, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to be like Stick Michael. And he said, well, okay, well, what does he do? I went, he works for you. You don't, you don't know what he does, George? He says, well, he does some scouting and he's in our meetings. I said, yeah, that's what I'd like to do. I said, I, I have a, a good reputation in Latin America. I'll help Donnie uh, Roland down there. No, it was Lynn Garrett had moved on to the, be the Latin, uh, Latin scouting director. I said, I'll help him down there. I said, I don't want to come in the office. Um, I said, I'll, I'll help you with putting teams together or go out in trades, any of that kind of stuff. And he says, well, you've got a contract for three years. He says, well, what are you making? And I said, I'm making this, this, and this. He goes, forget that. That's over with. You got a contract for life. And now I'm giving you any up my pay 50 grand each increment. So that was, that was my second firing. I got, I got a better job and more money. Man, I didn't realize getting fired could be so productive. <laughs> well, it was that time. And, you know, it's funny because Billy Martin, every time Billy came back, it, you know, George paid all those salaries. I mean, well, he let Billy go and then brought him back. I mean, Billy was, Billy was cashing pretty good. That's, that's for sure, you know. Well, those, uh, I, I remember those commercials. <laughs> Some of those, those commercials uh, – with George and Billy Martin when he's fired. I mean, you're fired again. Yeah, they were good. You already fired me. <laughs> they were good. There was a, during, during that time when I was doing that position, uh, George called me, says, Hey, I'm going to be gone for the day. I'm going up to New York. We're running a commercial up there. And um, he says, it's me and Jeter and it's uh, a credit card commercial. I said, okay, good. So he says, but I'm going to get paid. They're paying me 500,000. I'm just going to put it into the, the, the Latin signing bonuses because you couldn't touch the American ones because, you know, you, they were, you, you were restricted by budget. So I said, oh, that's great. So I talked to Jeter about a week later after Jeter was by the, by the minor league office. And I talked to him and he, I said, hey, how'd that commercial go? And he said, oh, my gosh. He goes, it, was, it took us all day to film it because George kept messing up. And apparently it was – and I saw the commercial just one time, but it was a credit card and they were, it was a Tonga line, you know, like at a wedding. Yeah. And Jeter and the girls were all tens. Right. And I guess George kept flirting with the girls and messing up and he couldn't get the Tonga line, you know, done, done right. But Jeter said, yeah, it was, it took us all day to, to do this stupid commercial because George kept messing up. <laughs> he was a character. That's for sure. Wow. Well, Dave, uh, do you have any questions for Gordon? I could sit here and listen to this all day oh, long. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, this, I mean, scouts are the lifeblood of, of the business, and it's a shame that good men are being pushed pushed aside. Gordon, are you okay talking about the issue with the scouts and MLB? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm part, I am part of the lawsuit. Um, um, just to be honest with you, they suspended me for a year. I think everybody knows about it for what they had determined as um, – as uh, breaking the rules and signing players. Um, I look at it as I, I worked around the rules, but uh, most, most guys that are successful down there are working around the rules. 
would I do th- would I do some things differently? Yes, I would. Um, but what bothers me is I got I, I was suspended a year. The commissioner never announced that my suspension was over, and <clears throat> I sent an email to all thirty general managers, and I knew quite a few of them to be honest with you. And the the part of the what I talked about, uh, I don't want to say being sorry, but I accepted the the decision of the commissioner's office, even though I didn't agree with some of the things that were stipulated in it. Uh, but I, I'm off suspension. I, I want to work again. And I would volunteer my time the first year for free. And we could negotiate part of a second year contract if they felt that my work was such that that they wanted to keep me. I had one general manager respond. That was Dave Dombrowski. They, he was with Detroit at the time. And He's with the Phillies now, and it was it was it was nice, but it basically said they didn't have anything. But here's somebody willing to work for free that has a background that's obviously pretty good, and they don't respond. So obviously, I was they stuck me on a do not hire list, which people have talked about. There's others on that um, do not hire list, and what's happened a lot of these scouts is, you know, they've they basically have let them go for age. Um, because one, they're making, they're making more money than they're hiring the guys into now Two, they have to pay into what they used to have the NEB, which is a non-uniform pension plan, which is they've now done away with, but those guys were getting money paid towards us. And to be honest with you, it's very lucrative, um, minus six figures. So it gives you an idea how lucrative. So they wanted to get rid of that and, They basically got rid of those people in that 50 to 60 group that would have drawn on this. And uh, obviously we're making, making, making more money than the scouts are bringing in today. It it drives me crazy because I know what a scouting budget is and it's nowhere near what they're paying players. And I think if you look at the clubs that are having success, they have people that can scout. I mean, the, the critical thing is to get young players, right? And you have to have good scouting to get young players, period. Um, I'll, give, I'll give you a real quick. We got, we got a few more minutes. I'll give you a quick example. Okay, so when I was with the Mariners, I created a what I called a Cuban folder. And I was fortunate. I had guys like Dan Jennings, uh, Bob Watson, Ronnie Hopkins, Roger Youngworth, all see the Cuban players back in the late 80s, early 90s. And so I had reports. Now, this is before computers. So I had this huge folder. It was probably four to five inches wide of reports that I kept with me. And when I left, I took it with me to New York. So when El Duque Hernandez uh, defected, I went right to George and said, George, best amateur pitcher in the world just defected out of Cuba. He says, what do you think? I said, we need to go see him, see if he's healthy. He hasn't pitched. He was suspended by the Cuban Baseball Federation and Fidel. Uh, he won 200 games in Cuba, just to give you an idea. And he's the ace. And I have these reports from these guys that I trust. And I've seen him also. He says, well, get down there and get him. So I went down there. I went, just wanted to see if he was healthy. He was. He was in great shape. He was, everybody put a gun on him. He was 88 to 91. Um, and like I said, he was, he was in great shape. Well, there was only two teams that were interested. It was us and the Angels. The rest of the young scouts had, you know, they're reading their Rhaegar gun. It's like 88, 91. He's, he says he's 28, but he's really 32. I knew he was 32. He really says 28. 
But when I came back, I said, George, <clears throat> we put him in triple A, let him get, get, get a few games under his belt. He'll help us. He'll help us win. And so George gave us the money and we built it really we're bidding against ourselves. Nobody else was really in the picture. I gave him $6.4 million over four years, which was a lot of money. And I had got a lot of calls from people saying, what the hell are you doing signing that old man? He's not any good. Well, he went to AAA, went six and one. <clears throat> and then a funny story is that Lynn Garrett says to me, he goes, you oh, know, David Cohn's dog should get a ring. And I said, why? Because he bit David and David uh, couldn't make a start. And we had to recall El Duque. Well, El Duque went to the big leagues and the rest is history. <laughs> I mean, he was 16 game winner. He won. I think Pettit has the record for most playoff wins because of the expanded schedule. But I think Duque had 11 or 12 playoff wins during his short career with us. Um, so there you go. There's, they're scouting in a nutshell what went on back in the day. And it was four or five guys that helped me make that decision who were a part of the Yankees. But I read those reports over and over again. And that's why I stood up and said, hey, I want to get this guy. Forget about the radar gun. It's meaningless. His fastball plays much bigger than a radar gun. And you, you only get that with, with, to me, really good scouting. Yeah. And what about the, uh, what about the guy that said he could look at a guy's minor league numbers and tell you what he's going to do in the big leagues when he was talking about El Duque. He was, he was talking about another guy, but we had this, you know, we had to come in with the Yankees where the, the metrics people came in and I'm all, I'm all for a lot of that. I, I think it benefits more player development than, than anything. If, if you see a guy's hitting all ground balls and the launch angle is minus three, that tells you you need to do some drills to help the guy get to 10 or 12. Cano was 12 and he had, 300 home runs in the big leagues. But anyway, the metrics guy said, um, hey, I can look at minor league stats and determine what kind of big leaguer he's going to be. Uh, in all my years, I, you know, there's no way I would say that at all. Um, you could get fooled real fast because there's a guys that hit a lot of home runs in the minors, don't hit any in the big leagues or don't even get there and vice versa. In fact, most minor league, most guys that hit home runs in the big leagues didn't hit a lot in the minor, didn't hit a lot of home runs. They were good, good hitters. They just learned to get the ball in the seats. So I blacked out this guy's name on a sheet and I handed it to him. And I said, who's that guy going to be? And he looked at the, he looked at it and he said, Oh, probably a up and down guy, you know, maybe a swing starter or, or a middle relief guy. And I took the thing off and it was Mariano Rivera. So but for me, it was kind of a, I said, nobody, nobody's that good. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And, I, you know, I have a bunch of friends that are still working in scouting. And uh, some of the stories I hear now about uh, they're being told by people in the front office or the analytics department who to go see based on all the data and stuff that's getting accumulated. And that uh, one in particular, one time in particular, he told me that this guy said, hey, we need you to go see this university. Because they got three guys who have really high spin rates, and we need you to go see these guys. And my buddy's like, "Really?" He goes, "There's been one guy drafted out of this college in the last ten years, and now all of a sudden you have three guys on one team that have high spin rates, and you want me to go spend a day <laughs> looking at these guys?" And and it's unfortunate because I know that now that there are actually players that I've heard that are being scouted when a scout hasn't actually or being signed. When a scout has never actually seen him in person. Unbelievable, isn't it? 
mean, and you know, and then so the area scout in that area, you know, basically that's a slap in his face because this guy signed in his area. He never saw him because he probably knew he wasn't the guy, and now he gets signed, and now who gets blamed? This guy's not a good player. The scout in that area. I had I I tell you what I had a large area. I saw every one of my colleges in the, in the fall. I charted every one of them. I knew I, I made notes on every single pitcher. Um, so there's no excuse. I, I see it now because they're not they congregate to where the the cross checkers are at and the big games are at. But it's going through. I signed a kid out of San Diego uh, in the ninth round, Mike Judd, that got to the big leagues with the Dodgers. He was a part of the Ventura trade when we traded <clears throat> the Yankees traded to get Ventura. We sent Mike Judd. He was a minor, low minor league guy that ended up getting to the big leagues, but got hurt. But I got him in the ninth round, and I got him because I was going in and seeing all the guys that are pitching. That's what scouting is. It's not what they're doing now. It's seeing them all. Period. There's, there, and he was on a JUCO, and it wasn't even a Grossmont Junior College. It wasn't even a great JUCO. That's that's what clubs should be doing. That's that's how you get better. And now they just send him to showcases because they can see him all in one place, right? And all the scouts congregate, and they're all there to see one or two guys. And yeah, um, I think a lot of a lot of the problems that's going on with the game um, is you don't see there's. There's not going to be many guys like me anymore that that get an opportunity because I didn't have the big numbers, you know, the, the um, my OFP or o- overall future performance um, that a lot of scouts use back in the day. I don't even know if they use it anymore, Gordon. Do they? No, I don't, they probably don't. I mean, I don't know how you don't put people in order if you don't have a numbering system. I mean, how do you say this guy? I want this guy over this guy. You know, because you got to. You got to put them in order. Um, Maybe so they don't. PG rankings. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, and, and that's you know that's great, but who's ranking them and what success are they having? And you know, you know that kind of thing. I, I don't. I'm not into the ranking thing. I, I think you. And I, I and I'd be shocked at, if if the clubs are using those rankings to, but maybe they are. Maybe that's the. Maybe that's the new new way of scouting. You scout off the showcase. I I've been involved. I was with Future Stars and showcasing. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to make a determination on that player just on a few at bats. You know, I helped sign Gary Sanchez. I went back through my reports on him and I rewrote him every time I saw him. <clears throat> Not rewrote him, but added or deleted to the report. I saw a hundred at bats, a hundred before we pulled the trigger. That's how much I saw him. It wasn't four at bats at a showcase. It was a hundred. Wow, still, that's just not happening anymore. Kind of, we kind of missed on the makeup, is where we missed. Right. He was he was a very talented player. We we he should have been an all star. Should have been an all star player. Well, he, you know, he hit twenty five home runs in the big leagues one year, and then he he went south. But um, that's another story too about the the catching stuff and the one knee catching and I think we all witnessed a little bit of the the stuff we saw with Mr. Sanchez and yeah well he they put him on a knee I mean all you got to do is look at the World Series last year that whole inning started with the ball that should have been blocked he was on a knee and he didn't get to the he didn't get to the pitch I can't remember if it was up or down or whatever but he 
that's a non-athletic position and you need to be in athletic position to catch period. And I don't, you know, Molina started it and he kind of started it because he had a bad knee. Um, and Molina's Molina. I'm sorry, Joe Jones at Sugarland High School is not Molina. You need to be in athletic position. I, I, I've seen, I haven't seen a lot of big league games, but I have seen a lot of, a lot of games where balls are going to the screen that shouldn't be going to the screen and they're causing runners to advance and or score in the big leagues. And you never used to see that. Period. And and I keep hearing, I have arguments a lot of time on social media. You know, you've seen a lot of my stuff about how they say, well, the pass balls are down now and this and that are down. It's like they've manipulated these numbers because now every ball that a guy doesn't block is a wild pitch. It doesn't matter. Yeah, what's like, it's that pitch. I'll tell you what goes to the screen a lot is the guy's really low and he's down in that stance and he throws one about letter high. And the catcher can't get to it because it's up there. Yep. And it goes to the screen, and that's ruled a wild pitch. That's not a wild pitch. That ball should have been caught. It never used to be a wild pitch. Position. And they say, well, he missed his spot by so much. It's like, yeah, but the catcher's, if it's in the air, it's the catcher's job to catch it. And they exactly. used to catch those. And they can't now because their gloves laying on the ground. Yeah. Well, that's another, that's, <laughs> we'll have to do this again. We have, uh, there's so much more we could cover. Gordon, I, I appreciate you taking the time, man. I look forward to getting to know you better and better over the years. You have had an incredible career so far. I know you've got a lot of things you're working on now, but uh, I appreciate the time today and the stories. Dave, thank you for uh, doing a wonderful job. This is the I'm not sure you've ever been this quiet during one of the shows, Dave, but uh, I know you've enjoyed it very much. Oh, my God. he's I could sit and listen to Gordon all day long. I'm telling you. So if you want to – if you want to – uh, mention our sponsors again before we get out of here and uh, we'll uh, let Gordon get on with his day. Yeah, we we read them off at the beginning. Make sure you support them. Millions, Jaw Bats, Kinetic Arm, one-on-one, and Monet will be a new one next week. And as you said, uh, Gordon's a treasure in baseball. And I think if more people were around you, uh, you know, when, again, it sounds like I know you made great impact there, but you could still be in the game now and if people just kept quiet and listened they'd have a lot of success in baseball. We appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I, I like, I like the old school guys to talk to. <laughs> it's just a network. Even, even though you're not that old, you at least think old school. Oh, we do. We do. And I'll let you close this out, Jeff. Okay. I appreciate it, Dave. Uh, another for wonderful job, another wonderful job. And uh, Gordon, appreciate it, sir. I'll be in touch with you. Um, for sure. We'll have to do this again. This is Jeff Fry. Signing off the She Gone podcast. She Gone!